Okay, so you've started this series. So, so you know that these, these chapters in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, there's a series of addresses to uh, a number of different churches. And it's important to realize that these were real churches in real cities, real people with real pr- problems, challenges. Um, and the more we, more we look at the early church... You know, see, while some of the issues being addressed may have applied specifically to these people, the more we look at the early church and study it, the more we start to see how much what their life was like and the challenges that they faced really are reflected in our lives. That, you know, the context may have changed, culture might have changed, but the challenges remain the same. And so, this book is a gift. Revelation is a gift because we get to learn from other people's experiences. We get to take from their journey and apply it here. So what I want to do this morning, how we're going to approach this, is we're looking at the church, the third church, the church in Pergamon. And so I want to read through the passage. We're going to read through it in its entirety just first to give us some, um, we'll just be able to have it all together. And then I'm going to go back to the start and I want to take you through it just verse by verse and give you some context because the message, there's an incredible message in this, uh, but the, the, the depth and the heart of the message is really found in the context in which it's written. So I want to take you through that this morning. And then how I want to end is to take a few minutes to do the application, you know, to take the then and there to the here and now and how we apply it to our lives and to, and to our world. So, does that sound all right? Yeah? Brilliant. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, if you're following along. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin as they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, verse 15, you also have those among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone and a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. It's an amazing passage and an incredible affirmation there with some correction and some adjustment to the people here in the Church of Pergamum. And you'll see this morning that the revelation that's been brought here while addressing a particular situation does apply to us. So let's take it slowly. I want to to take take you through this. So let's take it slowly. So jump back to verse 12 and I want to pull something out of it. To the angel of the Church of Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Him who has the sharp double-edged sword, that's Jesus. So John, so we know that John wrote the book of Revelation, but he's saying here, this is not my words, this is what Jesus has to say to you. This is what Jesus is saying to this church. And this is what he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
yet you remain true to my name. Okay, so Pergamon was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire at the time. It was a thriving metropolis by the standards of the day. So historians say that probably the population of this city at this time was about between 180 and 200,000 people. When you th- and you think pre-industrialization, you think that the time in history, that was, uh, that was an incredible epicenter of activity. It was... It was known for its architecture. That was one of its main things. It was actually located where modern-day Turkey is, and you can still visit the ruins of this city, which is, uh, which is amazing. And, uh, and some of these architectural features have been discovered today. But it was known for its architecture because they had these huge temples and these huge altars made to... So there was a huge altar made to Zeus, and there was the Temple of Athena, and these, um, these different kind of spiritual places. It was more than just a spiritual place. It was a key political centre. Uh, they had a huge library in Pergamon at this time. It was, it was one of the... They claimed it was the biggest library in the world at the time. Uh, they said that they had over 200,000 volumes. So they, were, they, were, um, they would have been manuscripts rather than books. And so this was, this was not a small-time kind of place that this church existed in. Uh, so it was an intellectual centre, a religious centre, a political centre. There was a plethora of uh, cultic-type spiritualities going on. But the, but the religious landscape was dominated by this, uh, what, what we call, or what is looked back on now, it's called the Roman imperial cult, which was basically people would worship like at, at different temples and worship the Greek gods. And, but above all, they actually paid homage to the, to the emperor of Rome and treated him like a deity. And so, and so that's what it was. They worshipped him as God and he would call himself the saviour and the lord and people, people would have to acknowledge him as that as part of being in Rome. And so it, this was the centre. So the, the whole Roman Empire was a little bit like that, but Pergamon was the spiritual centre for that kind of activity. And so Jesus is speaking to this church and he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And he's saying to them, I know how dark it is in the environment that you're in. I know how anti-Christian and anti and opposite to what you're trying to live out, your environment is. See, these people would walk out on the street and as they walked down the main, main street of their city, they would see literally um, temples and altars and shrines to different gods. They'd see money being raised for these activities through elaborate kind of feasts and uh, you know, sinful sort of activities that were going on. It was kind of like, if you wanted a, wanted a today kind of um, example, it was kind of like the Las Vegas or the, or the Amsterdam of the ancient world. It was Sin City. Um, and, and so, but there's a thriving church there. And so... And Jesus is commending them that you're, you're in this place where all this stuff is going on, yet you are staying strong. And you haven't run away, you haven't gone off and moved to the country, you've stayed and you, uh, you have not, you've, he- you've held the line. He's empathising with them. The next part of that verse says, so that's a bit of a context, that's what Jesus means when he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained true. He goes on to say, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Now he's referring to a situation here. And this is all going to give you a background to, to why he's saying what he's saying to this church. He's, he's saying, my faithful witness, which Antipas, who was put to death in your city. Now, we know here from scripture that Antipas was, was martyred in that city. Uh, but we don't hear a whole lot more. Traditional history, though, tells us the story of Antipas. And um, traditional history tells us the story of Antipas, who was most probably the bishop of Pergamon. And so there would have been a number of congregations around Pergamon, and he was the overseeing minister of in that, within that city. And he attracted the attention of the authorities uh, in, a, in a not so good way because he was, the church was growing, it was thriving, um, people were um, coming to Christ, people were getting saved, people were getting healed, people were getting delivered, all of this was going on. And People, uh, the, some, the authorities started to get concerned because he's driving evil spirits out of people and in a city that thrives and its economy is built on uh, spiritual, spiritualism, uh, it's, it's not real good for the economy when the fortune teller is not telling people's fortunes anymore and, and um, people, are, you know, people are getting set free of that kind of stuff. And so he's brought before the governor of the city, before the governor of Pergamon, and the Roman governor, and the Roman governor, as a punishment for what he's doing, says that he has to bring a sacrifice of wine and incense to the emperor God and say, the emperor is God, and essentially Jesus is not. And so Antipas refused, and at, under threat of death, he said, no, I, I, still, I still won't renounce Jesus. And so... The emperor, so the, sorry, the, um, the authorities take him to the altar of Zeus and he's, he's martyred there, dies for his faith in a horrific kind of way and in a way that was intended to set, make an example of him and strike fear into the hearts of all the Christians and all those, all those people that he was leading. And Jesus is writing to this church and he's saying, I know how bad this environment is that you're in. And I know about Antipas, and I know that happened, but he's commending them because he says, even in the times of Antipas, my faithful witness, you didn't renounce me. And so this is an incredible group of people that even under that, under that much pressure, didn't renounce Jesus and didn't shy away. But verse 14, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Who knows that's not kind of what you want to hear from Jesus? <laughs> like all the positives, and then he says, but nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is what he says to them. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. He's referring here to an Old Testament story. Now, Balak, who he's talking about here, it was King Balak back in, back in Numbers. And we don't have time today to go and read the whole story through, but I'll tell you the story of this king. Now, King Balak was king of the Moabites. The Moabites were a group of people who warred against Israel, and they, uh, and they hated Israel. And so there's a whole history of that through the, through the Old Testament. But at this time, King Balak particularly hated the people of Israel and wanted to destroy them. And so he rose up big military conquests against Israel. 
But every time he attacked them, he lost and Israel came out victorious. So what he did was he, there were a whole lot of warring nations and he created an alliance between every other nation that surrounded Israel. And they all got together. It was basically Israel versus the world. And they, they were going, let's, let's destroy Israel. So this alliance, military alliance comes together and they, and they come against Israel. But incredibly against all the odds, uh, severely outnumbered, Israel prevails again. And King Balak is furious. He can't believe that this has happened. And, he's, and he realises there's more going on here than just military, military um, strikes. That he said, this is some kind of magic. This is, this is their God. So there's, there's something going on here that this would happen. So he calls on the council of this evil prophet called Balaam. Balaam is how you say it. Is it anyone speak Hebrew here? No. I was in Israel a couple of, about two years ago, and I had, the, had this um, amazing experience of traveling around with this Messianic Jewish uh, guide, and, uh, and so it was really interesting to hear all the Bible names, he pronounced them, pronounce them, think, I don't even recognize that name, so we, we don't get it right, but Balaam, we'll say for this morning, um, and, he, and he, Balaam was an evil sorcerer, evil prophet, and so King Balak goes to him and says, I need you to put a curse on Israel so that they can be defeated. And so they go up onto the mountaintop and King Balak takes Balaam up there and Balaam goes to speak out a curse over the people of Israel. But every time he opens his mouth and tries to speak out a curse, a blessing comes out. And he tries again, he wants to speak a curse out and a blessing comes out and the king is furious saying what's... Like, I brought you here to curse them and you're speaking blessing. And Balaam says, I, I can't do it. He's, their God won't let me. I can't pronounce something that their God is not allowing. And so Balak says, well, how can we defeat them? How, what can we do? And Balaam says, well, this is, you know, this is not working. He said, as long as they're with their God and their God is with them, we can't, we can't touch them. And so he, but he says, there is something you can do though. He said, their God won't forsake them. But if you can get them to forsake their God, if you can entice them to compromise their relationship with him, then maybe you'll be able to, you know, bring them down. And so King Balak changes his approach. So rather than warring against them and bringing military strikes against them, he puts on a huge festival, he puts on a big party, and he invites the, the children of Israel to this festival. And at the festival, um, he starts his scheme of enticing them to start to engage in things that they know that they shouldn't be engaging in, in, in uh, eating, and this is what he's talking about, in immoral practices and Uh, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And through that activity, there was an infiltration of idolatry and sin into the Israel camp. And some of the men, some of the young men in Israel took Moabite wives. And um, and so from there, there was um, an infiltration and a rotting from the inside that happened morally. And there was a corruption that got into their ranks. And as that spread... Next time the Moabites came against Israel with a military strike, they were obliterated because 
they had made compromises in their hearts that had, and, and in their deeds that had, uh, that had stepped them out of um, God's protection. So why is Jesus talking about this with them? See, Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamon, see, he's drawing a parallel here. He's because he's talking about because this verse, this whole passage really is about compromise. He's saying, "Don't compromise," because he's saying, "Can't you see that you are just like Israel, Israel of ancient times? That you are in the city, you are being bombarded from every side. You have got spiritual attacks coming around you. You have got the governmental authorities threatening to kill you, and all of this is going on. But." You have been victorious because I am the Lord your God and I am with you and no weapon formed against you will prosper and nothing, nothing coming from the outside is going to be able to bring you down. Just like Israel, no matter how big the military strikes coming from the outside were, God was with them and God protected them. And Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, but can't you see that you are just like them because some of you have started to make compromises in your hearts and some of you have started to make compromises in your lives and it won't be the, it won't be the martyrdom and it won't be the spiritual onslaught and it won't be all those things that are your undoing. Your compromise in your heart and from the inside will be your undoing if you don't repent and you don't change. See, there's a, call to, there's a call to repentance here. It says, verse 15, Likewise, you also um, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, whoever spoke, about, spoke a couple of weeks ago might have mentioned Nicolaitans, but that's basically saying you've got mixed spirituality. You've got people who are going to church and worshipping Jesus and then mixing in other spiritualities as well through the rest of the week. He's saying you, you can't do that. Verse 16 says, Repent, therefore... Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying here, you need to repent because this is the thing. Small compromises lay open the doormat to deception in our lives. And as we, as we make small compromises in our hearts, that inevitably leads to actions, inevitably leads to deception, and inevitably allows sin in. And so, verse 17, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the hidden manna. So what he's saying is, see, this is not a condemnation as much as it is a, uh, it's a warning and an invitation. He says, because you need to repent. And when you do, I will give you hidden manna. That's, I will give you spiritual nourishment and strength. I will give you a white stone. The white stone in the, in the court of law in those days, if you got a white stone, that meant you were, uh, that was an acquittal. You're found innocent. If you're given a black stone, that meant you were found guilty. He's saying, I will give you innocence. I will give you righteousness. Then I will give you a new name, is what, is what the rest of that verse says. Person with white stone, a new name written on it. And the new name always talks of a new, like that's our new identity. It's that you are not your labels. You are not what people say you are. You are not your upbringing. You are his. You are Jesus. You are, you are God's. You are his child. And so in summary, we have this church who in so many ways have defied the odds. 
They've held the course, they've overcome adversity, they've been under threat of martyrdom, and even despite that, they've continued to follow Jesus. They have experienced success in so many ways as a, as a, as a body of believers. But Jesus is warning them that despite all of their success and all of their strength, that there is something subtle but deadly happening among them. And see, they've started with probably what feels like small compromises in what they accept, in what they do, in what they partake in. But Jesus, Jesus is saying it's opening the door to a deception that will be your undoing if you don't close that door. So what do we do with this? Because this is the so so this, so here's the here's the application, I suppose. Israel, the outside onslaught couldn't hurt her, but it was when the infiltration came in and the hearts changed that she came undone. When the church, Jesus is talking to the church of Pergamon, he's saying, "None of this, no no onslaught has been able to hurt you." But he's warning them that it's the heart and it's the compromise and it's the small things that will be their undoing. It's a warning to them, but it's a warning to the church in every generation. It's a warning to us. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this issue of compromise. But in the time I've got, because I've only got a few minutes, I just want to bring, I just want to bring three Three thoughts to you about, about this issue. Three lessons, really. The first one, lesson one, is that compromise generally starts in the heart, not in our actions. That's why in Proverbs 4.23, Solomon says, the brutes... Oh, sorry, he says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the issues of life. If you guard your heart and protect your heart and deal with the issues in your heart, you're a whole lot less likely to have to deal with the consequences of actions because your heart is actually what will lead to those actions. great example of this, or a tragic example of this, is in uh, this is the story of David and, David and Bathsheba. And we know the story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba and, and, um, and having her husband killed. And we know, we know that, like, it's, it's a horrific story. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing that happened. But you go back to the beginning of the story and, G, and, um, and David's standing there on the rooftop and he looks out and he sees Bathsheba and he desires her. You know, that's not really the beginning of the story. See, the beginning of the story happens a chapter earlier when it says that the nation of Israel were at war and all the men were in the battlefield, but David stayed at home. And you see, as the king, as a man in that nation, he should never have stayed at home. He should have been in the battlefield with the men. But it was the small compromise in his responsibility as king. It was the small compromise in his heart that said, I'm going to put my comfort above my responsibility or the needs of the people who I'm serving. I'm, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to, take, I'm going to take this one out. 
it was that compromise that led him to be standing on that roof because if, that comprom- if he hadn't made that compromise, if he guarded his heart from the start, he would not have even found himself in the position where he was being tempted to step into sin. So compromise starts in the heart. Leads me into the second lesson that I want to bring you this morning. It's kind of the same, but, it, but it's different. Compromise starts in the heart, but also compromise happens incrementally. Compromise never feels that bad. It never feels that bad. They're just little, they're just little steps, and it's just a little, little bit more. And it never feels that grave, but it's the series of steps in the wrong direction. You know, a shipwreck doesn't happen because someone reefs the wheel towards the, towards the rocks. Shipwreck happens because, you know, I was, I was walking out on, uh, on Stockton Breakwall with a friend of mine who's a diver. And he was telling me about how many shipwrecks there are on the bottom of Newcastle Harbour there along Stockton Breakwall. And he, he dives in there and, and um, explores you know, the, the wreckages. You know, the vast majority of those shipwrecks don't happen because someone did something ridiculous and drove straight into the rocks. It's because someone got a little bit off course a long way back. And it wasn't just getting a little bit off course. Then they started to drift... And no one made the change soon enough. And they end up on the rocks. I know Pam was telling me the story recently of... Um, she was talking about a, a principal of a, um, a big school, a Christian school down in Sydney. And this school, two generations ago, was known for... Like, it was created as a ministry outpost for Jesus Christ. It was known as... a place of Christian education raising up young young leaders of the future to take Jesus into their generation that was two generations ago great school it grew it thrived but here we are two generations later and the principal said and this school in this generation has been known as one of the most humanist anti-christian environments in the, in the country as far as educational institutions. And someone asked him, how did it go from that? How did it go from this thriving ministry of Jesus to this place that doesn't even like Jesus being mentioned? And he said it happened one small compromise at a time. It's the drifting ship. And it's the small steps that wear us down. You know, um, in the natural, we've got an immune system. I, I like this analogy. In the natural, we've got the immune system that protects us from uh, illnesses that we're exposed to and, and germs. We've got, we've, got, we've got this. But see, when our immune system gets weak, we get run down and we actually are more susceptible to, the, to anything we come across. And I think it's the same spiritually. I think we kind of have this spiritual immune system having Jesus in our lives. But when we make compromises in the area of righteousness, I think it runs down our spiritual immune system. We become more susceptible to the, to the attacks that are out there. Which leads into my third lesson for this morning. So, one, that compromise starts in the heart. Two, 
happens incrementally, but lesson, lesson three is that compromise requires repentance. That's why he says here, repent therefore. You know, repentance isn't, someone, I heard someone say, repentance, the simplest way to think of repentance is repentance is taking God's side against myself. Saying, God, I'm wrong, I'm taking your side, I need to change. And see, repentance, the Bible talks about how repentance actually releases grace over our lives. And see, grace isn't just forgiveness of sin. It's, it's not just, God, I repent and so now I'm forgiven. It's Yes, it's that, but it's a whole lot more because grace gives us not just forgiveness of sin, but power over it. And so God is so faithful and when we turn to him and when we repent and say, God, I'm choosing to take your side against myself right now, there is a supernatural power that is released in our life that empowers us in those situations. There is something that we tap into that we didn't have access before until we realign our hearts with him. And that's what Jesus is imploring the church at Pergamon to do. See, it's not necessarily the big things that we always have to make these adjustments in. Sometimes there are big things, but it's the, it's the little things that we need to take God's side against ourselves. It's the, this month, how are we filling out our tax return? And there's those little grey bits and it's everything. It's like, God, I want to be above reproach. I don't want to make compromises. It's in the, what we allow ourselves to be entertained by. It's the, it's the, but it's more than that. It's the decisions we make based in, out of fear or based out of self-promotion or based out of pride rather than out of righteousness. And Jesus says to the church at Pergamon, you need to repent and see what I will release over you. And I think... It's what he says to us today. It's what, he said, it's what he's saying to his church in every generation. Because this is what he promises. He says, if you take my side against yourself and, and, and make these adjustments, he promises, he says, I will give the manna. I will give you spiritual nourishment and strength. He promises, I will give you the white sand. I will give you full acquittal and righteousness and my holiness bestowed on you. And I'll give you a new name. I will help you step into your identity of who I say you are, not who you think you are. And so, I guess to, to close this, because it's a bit of, they're all kind of heavy words, these words to these churches in Revelation. And it's really important that we walk away from reading something like this or a message from this in the right spirit because the enemy would love nothing more than to take an invitation from Jesus to say yes and to step into this invitation that, he, that, that he's given here and twist it to make us walk away from reading this feeling condemned or make us feel away, walk away from this feeling fearful of making a mistake because perfect love Cast out all fear, and and this is actually a there's actually a promise attached to how we respond to this. So I want to pray with you this morning, 
And this is what I want to pray. I, we, I want to pray together, but then I want to pray verse 17, this promise of Jesus over you as his church this morning, as a blessing. Because it's not a condemnation, it's an invitation. And the affirmation that Jesus gives the church at Pergamon here, you know, we might not walk down the road and see a temple to Zeus. But we walk down the road and see temples to self everywhere. And we might not necessarily see all the sacrifices and ritualistic stuff happening in the street. But the environments that so many of us walk into each week and work in, and it may as well be Pergamon. And there's this affirmation here saying, and there's this encouragement here saying that just like Israel, no weapon formed against it could prosper. And just like Pergamon, no weapon formed against it could prosper. That for us today, no weapon formed against us will prosper. If we would just heed the warning that the threat is not out there, it's here. And so I want to pray for you. And uh, so can I invite you to, to stand? I'm not sure how you do it here, but we'll... And I'm just going to pray a prayer of realigning our hearts with Jesus. I love this song, you know, about Jesus, because Jesus is the centre. And if you want to be, I guess, if you just want to be, if you want to be part of this, because I'm going to pray it, it's just a matter of in your heart saying yes and leaning into this and saying, Jesus, this is, this, God, this is me. So right now, Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your truth. And right now we choose to realign our hearts with your truth, the truth of your word by the power of your spirit. Father, would you forgive us for the times that we have compromised your word or grieved your spirit either in our deeds or our attitudes, in what we might have done or what we've not done. And we ask for your forgiveness. Right now, in Jesus' name, we receive your forgiveness and step into your light. And I'm going I'm to just speak this verse over you as a blessing. So in Jesus' name, I bless each person here today 
as people who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. That Jesus Christ, the one who is victorious, is blessing each person here today with what He promised He would bless you with. A blessing of spiritual strength and nourishment. He's bestowing on you His righteousness and holiness, the white stone of innocence. And today He's calling us afresh into our identity in Him and who He says He is, that our labels are not who we are, our upbringing are not who we are, our sin is not who we are, our past is not who we are. We are who He says we are and He says we are His. He calls you child and I pray that that would be your experience in your heart today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.